For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme music composed and performed by Ben Shive. Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For the next several episodes of The Rabbit Room podcast, leading up to Easter Sunday, we are honored to present a series of sermons by Pastor Russ Ramsey of Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. Russ describes them as a sermon series focused on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, examining the validity of Jesus' claim that no one would take his life from him, but that he'd lay it down of his own accord and take it up again on the third day. This next sermon is titled, Parenthesis. The religious leaders in Jerusalem presume that they are in fact acting on God's behalf and the basis for that presumption is this. They're the ones who are installed as the authorities in God's temple. They're the ones. They're in charge with their responsibility. It is their job. But on the other hand, Jesus is now there in Jerusalem and he's acting really independent of their authority. He's ministering without their permission. He's acting as a leader, exerting his will upon people without clearing it with them. And in this study, we're going to ask this question, what positions of authority is Jesus claiming for himself and why is this this particular behavior so upsetting to the religious leaders? To understand what's going on here, we have to understand a little bit of Old Testament history. And that is that there were essentially three offices that the people recognized as being God-ordained positions of authority over the people. They were the offices of prophet and of priest and of king. These were the ones who were ordained to preserve and protect and to oversee the life of God's covenant people. Prophets had this role. Their job was to speak the word of God to the people of God. And if it helps you to think of priests this way, their job was to speak the words and the prayers of the people to God. They're the ones who brought the offerings and the prayers and the worship and the sacrifices of the people to God. The king was a little bit of a different capacity. He was one who stood as a representative of the people before God. He represented the nation. That's why when you look at the Old Testament and you read about the kings, one of the things that's always, always written about them was, this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or this king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It was significant to the people of God because they recognized that their kings, in a very significant way, represented the kingdom to which they belonged as as God created. And so there was the prophet, the priest, and the king. These were the offices that God set over his people. In your New Testament, you're going to recognize that Jesus is regarded as all three of these in many places. Um, and, And he's throughout, throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is recognized as all of these. Particularly in the Gospels, he's acknowledged as a prophet. In the epistles, he's acknowledged as a priest. And in Revelation, he's very much talked about as a king, as a mighty ruler. Now, studying Jesus through the lens, if you, have you ever heard of, you've heard of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king? We talk about it at Christmas. This way of studying Jesus, you know, this, this structure 
of looking at him in these three offices is something that really didn't rise to popularity until around the time of the Reformation when men like uh, John Calvin recognized that, you know, when you, when you study Jesus through these offices which are ascribed to him, what you see is you see that <clears throat> Jesus, we can, we can have assurance that he is the perfect Messiah because... He fulfills all three of the anointed offices that God places over his people perfectly. So we can know that, that his work was complete and perfect because he was the perfect prophet and the perfect priest and the perfect king. He was the perfect proclamation of God's word to his people. He was the perfect mediator between people and God. He was the perfect representative of the people of God standing as our mediator before God as the one who represents us as a nation. But it wasn't just that he fulfilled these offices better than anyone else had up to that point in the sense that he just he was a little bit better at everybody else before. That's not it. It's that the way that he filled these offices was profoundly other than the way it had been done before. Because see, it wasn't just that as a prophet he brought the word of God's salvation. The apostle John tells us that he was the Word of God. So the prophet actually is the Word of God. The prophet is the message that the prophet brings. Second, as a priest, he didn't just bring the sacrifice of, before God on the people's behalf. He became the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. This had never been done before. This wasn't practiced where the priest actually became the sacrifice, but that's what we find Jesus doing. As king, he didn't just accomplish peace for his people. But he personally absorbed every warring assault against his people from without and every treacherous act of treason from within. He took it all as king. He didn't just dispatch armies to go and deal with the little skirmishes. He took it himself, all of it. These offices were ordained of God for Israel and they carried great authority because all three of them stood as mediators between God and his people. And in these last days, these days that we've been studying so far of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's publicly assumed the authority of each of these roles and he has done it in such a way as to present himself as superior to everyone, other who, everyone else who has currently or historically filled these roles. And he has done it in a way that he is conveying, after me, there will be no need for any other. So perfectly is he fulfilling these offices that there will not need to be another king after him, nor another prophet, and nor another priest. And what's more is he claimed all three of these roles at the same time. And that just wasn't done. And what I want us to look at this morning is how did he do this? in the days leading up, in the things that we've seen already, how does Jesus present himself as the last prophet, priest, and king that God's people would ever require? And I want to begin by looking at Jesus fulfilling the role of the superior perfect prophet who is the message of God. When first century Jews thought of prophets, here's some of the names that came to mind. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Elijah. These are the kinds of people that came to mind when people thought of prophets, a who's who of men who shaped a nation and who brought the comforting news of coming victories 
and the foreboding warnings of coming exile to the people of God. But like the priests and like the kings, prophets were understood to be limited in their office. And what I mean by that is this. No priest would actually be the sacrifice for Israel. No king would single-handedly ensure peace and strength. And likewise, no prophet would actually bring to pass the promises that God put in his mouth. He was a mouthpiece, but he wasn't the one who was responsible for accomplishing the promises that God gave. He simply delivered them to the people with God's authority, and God was the one who would fulfill them. But God told Moses about prophets and prophets that were to come. He said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers and I'll put words, my words in his mouth and he shall speak to the people all that I command him. And the understanding was that this was speaking of a prophet who would be superior who would be superior than all, over all others. In fact, Peter, in, in the book of Acts, in, in, in Acts chapter 3, he's preaching this sermon, and he quotes this text for, about Moses, about the Lord bringing a prophet like Moses, and he says this is in reference to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews spoke of Jesus as the superior prophet this way, in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. So the very opening verses of the book of Hebrews, he says this, in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He also created the world. You can see the superiority of Jesus in that expression. He used to speak to us through prophets, men like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. But now, in these latter days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who's the heir of everything in God's kingdom and who was present and instrumental in the creation of all that is, including your life and mine. This is superior. Prophets were God's mouthpiece, so there was a necessary authority that came not only in their words, but in the way that they delivered them. When you read the Old Testament prophets and you hear about the way some of these prophets conveyed their message, it was oftentimes very bold, very stunning, very stark. And we see that this is, this is the same with Jesus. When he preaches his sermon on the mountain, Matthew 5 through 7, it ends with Matthew telling us that the people were really astonished at him because of the authority with which he spoke that was really different from even the, the scribes and the Pharisees. That Jesus carried in his words, in his prophetic message, an authority that was stronger than the religious teachers of the day. And we've seen this authority in pretty much every word Jesus has said since Palm Sunday. We've seen him speaking this way with such an unflinching, confident authority. But the real difference between Jesus and the other prophets was that when other prophets spoke, they spoke of who God was. And they spoke of what God meant to do. But Jesus spoke of himself. And he spoke of what he had come to do. When he entered the city of Jerusalem to the praises of people on Palm Sunday as they laid down their palm branches and their coats and they sang, Hosanna to the Son of David, Jesus accepted their praise. He accepted it as one not merely there to talk about God's salvation, but as one who was there to actually become God's salvation. In fact, when the Pharisees said, listen, you've got you to make these people be quiet 
because they're praising you in the way that people only are supposed to praise God. Jesus' reply was, if they are silent, the stones are going to cry out and praise me. That was his response. That is the air of a superior prophet. There was another time on, I think it was Tuesday, when children were praising Jesus with a psalm, singing about the great works that he had done. No, this was Monday. They were praising him with a psalm. And everybody knew that had read their Bibles that this psalm, speaking of praise, was a praise that was meant to be directed to God, not to man. And so the children are praising Jesus with this psalm and the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 that praise belongs to God. And Jesus says, these children singing the song are fulfilling a prophecy that is right. I am right to be praised. The prophets came one after another to tell God's people about their holy God, about their separation from Him because of their sin and their need for a Savior. But Jesus came claiming divinity Himself. Jesus came on a mission to address their separation from God by becoming their perfect sacrifice, their Savior. He didn't just bring the message, He was the message. He didn't just tell them that they needed salvation, He accomplished their salvation Himself. And from here on out, Jesus will take one Old Testament prophecy about God's redeeming grace after another and say that they refer to Him. Now this is either the behavior of a liar or a lunatic or someone who is in fact the most superior prophet ever come to the people of God. And what we notice from God's word is no one is calling him crazy. Because there's too much evidence around that these miracles that he is performing are real. Lame people are walking, blind people are seeing, dead people are alive and in the next town over. And Jesus is staying with him. There's too much evidence. As the only prophet actually accomplishing the word that he delivers, Jesus is the most superior prophet ever known, accomplishing the message of God's salvation himself. Next we see Jesus presenting himself as priest and as the superior priest, as the final priest. He carried his priestly ministry in the temple with an air of superiority that ruffled the feathers of the leaders there. Because when the people of Israel spoke of priests, they thought of Aaron, Moses' right-hand man. And they thought of Aaron's descendants, the Levites, who had been set apart by God to oversee the holy place, to preserve and expound upon God's word to the people to enter that holy place as priests. But only once a year in the hopes of making atonement for the sins of the nation. These priests, they were the bloody ones. They were the ones who were perpetually bringing animals from the people around them and offering, offering them as sacrifices to God. They were the ones who constantly smelled like smoke and iron blood all the time. They had a unique, distinct presence that when they would pass you in the street, it would call to mind thoughts of worship and thoughts of guilt and a resolve to attend to your worship more regularly. It was the scent of guilt that they carried. 
priests. They were called to this holy life, set apart because the expectation was that they needed to be holier than the people that they represented. The expectation was that they would labor their entire lives to bring as perfect a sacrifice as they could. No one ever did. No one ever brought the perfect sacrifice and no priest bringing a sacrifice was ever himself perfect. But during Jesus' last week, he presents himself as a priest who has authority over what happens in the temple, even over the religion of the people of God as a whole. And the clearest example of this is when he goes into the temple and he overturns the money changers' tables. He is acting as though he is the steward of this place, that this is his father's house. And he says as much, it is written, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer and you have made it in to a den of robbers. He upset the system, but then what did he do? This is one of my favorite things in this study so far that we've uncovered about Jesus, is that when he overturns the money changers' tables, he doesn't make his point with all that bravado and then say, all right, enough is enough, and then leave so that they can think about it. He stays in the temple as the furniture is upset, as the money changers are trying to gather their coins but keep their distance. He stays and he presides as priest of the temple that day. And the lame and the blind come to him and he ministers to them and he brings God's word to them and he heals them and he touches them and the lame walk and the blind see and the children are coming to church because they want to. And they want to see the priest do his thing. They can't believe it. And they're watching this transformation happen in people's lives. And they're remembering the song. You know how children can remember a song that they heard a day before? Just word for word and sing it. They just have that memory. They start to sing. They start to sing that triumphal entry song that they were hearing. Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. And like children, they don't ever get tired of the repetition of it. They're singing it. Hosanna. 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 Save us now. 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 When he disrupted business as usual in the temple and then stayed around to minister... He set himself up as the priest with authority over that temple. No one was coming to the Father but through him that day. Now through the lens of hindsight, we see that he was in fact the superior priest. He was, and he remains so to this day. How do we see it? Two ways that set him completely and utterly and perfectly apart from every other priest. The first is that the sacrifice that he offers on the people's behalf was superior. It was perfect, in fact. It wasn't a lamb, it wasn't a calf, it wasn't a pigeon for a man, but it was himself. A human life for a human life. The other way that this priest is superior is that the priest himself who is bringing the sacrifice is perfect. This also was unheard of. In the Old Testament, the priests were required, you can read about this in Leviticus 16, the priests are required to offer a sacrifice on their own behalf before they bring a sacrifice on the behalf of the people because they were sinners too. And the illustration and the point of all of this was God teaching his people that everyone is guilty. Everyone is guilty and the only hope of redemption that any of us can have has to come through the death of an innocent victim. Because Jesus lived a perfect life, he's innocent in the sight of God. And since the sacrifice that he meant to offer was himself, this would be the first and only perfect sacrifice offered for a sinful people. And since he was the sacrifice that he offered, it too was perfect. So you have a perfect sacrifice offered by a perfect 
priest. It is finished. It is complete. He represents the people perfectly as one who is without sin and offers a sacrifice that is perfectly comparable to those for whom it is offered a life for a life. And because of this, it wasn't a display of bravado, but a point of fact that Jesus was the greatest priest that the temple had ever known that week or evermore. And so he was right to carry himself with an air of superiority as he entered there and ministered. The third office that we see Jesus fulfilling perfectly in this parenthetical pulling back view of this last week and what Jesus is about, why he is laying down his life, is that he is coming as the king who is superior to all others. When the people of Israel thought of kings, two men came to mind during Jesus' day. David and Caesar. And they were hero, anti-hero. David was everything that a king should be. He was brave. He was kind. He was artistic. He was strong. He was blessed with grace. He was adored by the people. The hearts of the people were his. Caesar was the king who ruled them now, and he was everything that they despised. He was a Gentile pagan blasphemer who not only permitted but insisted that his subjects regard him as a god and who ruled Israel as a part of a conquest to make the entire world his kingdom. Now, we live in a democracy where we elect new leaders, presidents, senators, congresspeople on a regular basis. And so this idea of kingship is really not an everyday concept for Americans. But let's understand, let's try to understand what it was to the people of Israel. Kings were meant to reign for a lifetime. The king you got was the king who was meant to be on his throne until he died or until there was a war that removed him. And a kingdom very much reflected the personality and the conviction of its king. So the people really wanted a strong, wise, good king because it was his kingdom and they were only living in it. But a king was called to build a kingdom with an eye toward the people that he ruled over. And when a king would shirk this responsibility and build his kingdom for his own glory and his own wealth and his own power, inevitably, he and his leaders would be corrupted and the people would suffer and the kingdom would be miserable. It never worked for a king to seek to make himself wealthy and powerful and glorious at the expense of his people. But a good and wise king the implications were just so amazing for the people. This could mean a good, peaceful, long life for his people. And when peace isn't an option, a good king will go and he will fight for justice and he will win. A good king was more than a ruler. He was a servant of his people. 
And Israel knew such a king in their distant national memory. And there was this tacit hope lingering in the hearts of God's people that one day they would have another king like David, only one who would just be more David than David was. He would be better even than that if they could even imagine. This king would be superior because his rule would go on forever and ever. You see, the promise that God made to David was that David would be established as the king of God's people and of his throne and of his rule there would be no end, that his throne would be established forever and that there would be one who would come who would be the king, who would reign. When Mary, the mother of Jesus, was about to conceive by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, these words were spoken over the son that she would have. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will come again and he will come as king. But when he does, it will be a very different entry than how he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on that colt, it was as a servant king, meek and lowly. He rode to shed his blood. This was a coronation of one who came to extend mercy and grace to sinners. And in this last week of his earthly ministry, though his time was fraught with tension and conflict and injustice, his purpose was to secure for you justice and mercy and God's patience and God's grace. And this is how Jesus, the King, rules even now, contending for justice, mercy, grace, peace over the people of God, over any who would come into His kingdom. But He is coming again, and when He does, it will be very different than how He came to Jerusalem this last week. And I want to close by reading about His return so we can understand the King who is coming and superior in every way. And with that said, I want to invite you all to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Hear the return of the King Jesus. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When our King returns, 
It will not be on a donkey's foal, but will be on a white horse of war. Not on a makeshift road made of coats and palms, but with fire in his eyes, a crown of glory on his head, and a robe saturated in his own blood. And he will be called the Word of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and justice will come from his mouth. And that kingship will look different than the rule that we're under now. But now, there is time. There is mercy. There is grace. But when he comes again, it will be to judge the world. To judge what we did with his mercy and grace extended to us. But for now, there is amnesty. Can you hear the word of Jesus our prophet who is the message of salvation? Can you see Jesus our priest becoming the sacrificial lamb for your sins? Will you run to the amnesty? the refuge of his kingdom of mercy and grace. Until he comes again, there is still time. Will you yield? This has been episode 13 of the Rabbit Room Podcast, produced at the Warren outside of Nashville, Tennessee.